1: say a few words as I introduce our speaker this evening. He's familiar to most of you if you've been around. John Hayward was uh, raised in this congregation and has finished his seminary degree uh, a year or two ago now. But what you don't know is this summer, he finished both his Hebrew and Greek languages that are requirements for ordination. So how do you like that? Learning, finishing up Hebrew and Greek at the same time, and, uh, enjoying it too. That's even more amazing. As I talked to John, uh, he enjoyed it. Uh, But if you remember back in March when we were shutting down the services, we were about to hear from John on 1 Samuel 12. And now that we're back on Sunday evenings again inside, we're resuming 1 Samuel, our series there. And I was saying to John in the robe room, it's like John Calvin being uh, let go from his pulpit in Geneva when he was young and, uh, in a sense, asked to leave town and then eventually being asked to come back after two-plus years. And as you might guess, Calvin just picked up in his study, in his preaching in Romans where he had left off with the next verse that he was going to do years before. I said to John, you can't say that because you don't want to identify with John Calvin like that's who you are. But, uh, but I can say it. <laughs> so we're so glad that um, John is bringing the word of God. Pray for him and Heidi uh, as they seek God's will for their lives. John is the is a dean of a classical Christian school in Harrisburg, and um, but is seeking God's will for God's calling on his life. And so, without further I do, John. Bring the word of God.
0: Well, it is good to be with you again. Some people, I think, could make a decent argument that some things have changed since the middle of March. Uh, but certainly we know that none of the most important eternal things have changed. God's word is still living and active. And we will be looking at 1 Samuel chapter 12, but would you, would you please pray with me? Almighty God, we confess that we have gone through another week. Lord, now we begin a new one. But all last week, uh, we've listened to voices. We've listened, Lord, to voices that come to us uh, from our own minds, our own thoughts. We've listened to voices that come to us from various news media Lord, from social media, uh, from friends, from co-workers, Lord, voices that we have sought, voices that we have not sought. But Lord, we ask uh, that you would speak to us, that we would have ears to hear your voice from your word, uh, and that it would remake us, and that it would remind us and refresh us in knowing Jesus Christ. We do pray in his name. Amen. So, as, as you turn uh, to 1 Samuel 12, if you're not already there, I wanted to maybe prime the pump of our minds to get used to considering uh, what uh, the passage would have us consider this evening. Uh, perhaps in, in these past six months, uh, you've been seeking comfort. Uh, perhaps you've sought comfort in a variety of places. You've had uh, things change in your life. You've thought more about death. Uh, and so I thought I'd ask you this question, and I didn't come up with it. It's, what is your only comfort in life and in death? That is, that is the first question in the Heidelberg Catechism, uh, a rather old Q&A book uh, about the Christian faith that's, that's for children, that's for Christians to come through uh, in the Dutch tradition once a year, go through the whole whole Heidelberg Catechism. Uh, and certainly, it's, it's, it's truths. We've actually repeated it multiple times this year uh, in, in our Confession of Faith. So what is your only comfort in life and in death? I want to read the answer that the Heidelberg Catechism gives to us. What is your only comfort in life and in death? That I am not my own, but belong, body and soul, in life and in death, Christ, by His Holy Spirit, also assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for Him. What glorious truths. Uh, worth spending perhaps a whole year reflecting on. Certainly worth memorizing, worth teaching to your children. Uh, take advantage of kids' sticky brains and just stick good stuff to it uh, and have them memorize it. Uh, but uh, is, it, is it actually Is it not just aspirational? Is it actually where you've been finding comfort? Um, And how can we find comfort like this? We don't often read question number two. Question number two in the Heidelberg Catechism says this. What do you need to know, how many things must you know to live and die in the joy of this comfort? What do you need to know to know the joy of this comfort? There are three things but the first thing that it says is first thing we need to know to have this comfort is to know how great my sin and misery are. How great my sin and misery are. And that 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 is what this text is going to show us. This text is going to show us show the reader the great sinfulness of the sin of Israel in seeking a king for themselves and the faithfulness of God to his covenant. And we see Samuel acting as an eternity and he lays out the case for these two things, for the sinfulness of Israel and asking for a king and for the faithfulness of God. Let's let's give attention to God's word. And Samuel said to all Israel, behold, I have obeyed your voice and all that you have said to me and have made a king over you. And now behold, the king walks before you, and I am old and gray. And behold, my sons are with you. I have walked before you from my youth until this day. Here I am. Testify against me before the Lord and before his anointed. Whose ox have I taken? Whose donkey have I taken? Or whom have I defrauded? Whom have I oppressed? Or from whose hand have I taken a bribe to blind my eyes with it? Testify against me, and I will restore it to you. They said, You have not defrauded us, or oppressed us, or taken anything from any man's hand. And he said to them, The Lord is witness against you, and his anointed is witness this day, that you have not found anything in my hand. And they said, He is witness. And Samuel said to the people, The Lord is witness, who appointed Moses and Aaron and brought your fathers up out of the land of Egypt. Now therefore stand still that I may plead with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous deeds of the Lord that he performed for you and for your fathers. When Jacob went into Egypt and the Egyptians oppressed them, then your fathers cried out to the Lord and the Lord sent Moses and Aaron who brought your fathers out of Egypt and made them dwell in this place. But they forgot the Lord their God. And he sold them into the hand of Sisera, commander of the army of Hazor, and into the hand of the Philistines, and into the hand of the king of Moab. And they fought against them. And they cried out to the Lord and said, we have sinned because we have forsaken the Lord and have served the Baals and the Ashtoreth. But now deliver us from the hand of our enemies that we may serve you. And the Lord sent Jerubbaal and Barak, and Jephthah, and Samuel, and delivered you out of the hand of your enemies on every side, and you lived in safety. And when you saw that Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, came against you, you said to me, no, but a king shall reign over us, when the Lord your God was your king. And now behold, The king whom you've chosen, for whom you've asked, behold, the Lord has set a king over you. If you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, and if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. Now, therefore, stand still and see this great thing that the Lord will do before your eyes. Is it not wheat harvest today? I will call upon the Lord that he may send thunder and rain, and you shall know and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord and asking for yourselves a king. So Samuel called upon the Lord, and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day. And all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. And all the people said to Samuel, Pray for your servants to the Lord your God that we may not die, for we have added to all our sins this evil to ask for ourselves a king. And Samuel said to the people, do not be afraid. You have done all this evil, yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. And do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you, and I will instruct you in the good and the right way. Only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart, For consider what great things he has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. So Samuel starts off this passage by uh, vindicating his own integrity of of, of ministry, that he's, he's, he's a good guy right? He, he, he's been a faithful servant, and he has committed none of the evils that Eli's family had before him or that the king's will after him. He claims the Lord and the people and the king as witnesses to, to this, and there is no opposing testimony. The Lord and people agree that he is righteous. And the Lord is witness to this. So now Samuel has drawn them in. He, he kind of has their attention. He's on his way out, but he has their attention and he has, a, he has a last sermon he needs to give them. He says, you're right, the Lord's witness about my faithfulness as a judge. What's the Lord's witness about you? Stand still. Let me tell you about all the faithfulness of God. He says, listen, I need to talk to you about something. We know that he is about to show them God and his faithfulness in a way that shows them the ugliness of their sin. So how does, how does Samuel do this? He, he kind of walks them through redemptive history, showing them their great sin. He starts off at the Exodus. Look at verses 6 to 8. He starts off at the Exodus, right? God's people were oppressed victims and the Lord saved them when they cried out. What a king. Just remember the story of the Exodus. Think of the the passage in Exodus 2. Beautiful words of the faithfulness of God. It says, during those many days the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning And remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew what a king. God heard; he remembered his covenant. He saw; he knew. What a king! Then we look at verses nine through eleven. A little bit of a different thing. We see God's people as compromised idolaters. They forgot the Lord. They are sinned. They are living in sin, and they are suffering the consequences of their sin. And yet, they cry out to God. They repent. And this is a cycle. This is story upon story upon story upon story here. That's why why Samuel needs to list a bunch of people that the Lord sent, including himself. But the Lord did send redemption. Redemption again and again and again. Forgiveness. What a king. And then Samuel has, this has all been set up for Samuel's blow to the people to show them their sin. Because what do we see in verse 12? We see one king, Nahash of the Ammonites, rises up and threatens them. And the people cry to Samuel, give us a king. Samuel has shown them their sin. That's insane. Why would they reject this king who took them out of redemption and took them out of Egypt and saved them despite their sin? And this sin was one of trust. This sin was one of dependence. What was Israel depending on? What was Israel putting their hope in? And it's tricky here. We don't want to just think of this category of sin in general the text would have us move in one specific direction because this sin is trust in a thing that was not a bad thing. God got it appointed for a king. It's right there in Deuteronomy under Moses. They say, hey, and when you have a king, here's what he should do. Here's what he shouldn't do. So, so there's nothing wrong with a king. The problem is their trust in that king. The problem is they cried out to Samuel for a king. They rejected the Lord their God as king. So we want that specific context to shape how we want this passage to settle down into our hearts. What are the good things that you're trusting in that are still causing you to reject God as king? What are the legitimate things that we are trusting in in an illegitimate way, right? What are the God-given, God-ordained, God-planned gifts to a healthy church that we are trusting in, in an unhealthy way, that we are putting an unhealthy emphasis on? And this is tricky. Every time our hearts get engaged, when there's something that's not an obviously bad thing, it's it's a good thing, a bad God. But still our hearts can sort of respond and say, Well well there's nothing wrong with it. Right? And so we, we need we need we need help doing this. And the Holy Spirit will work on us uh, throughout this this time together, but also throughout, and, and I wanted some help on it, so I asked Ralph Davis, not personally, but in his commentary, I asked him, How how do we want to look into this passage? And he 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 nails it. Right? He says, We And he's speaking to a church very similar, modern American context. We have a tendency to assess our problems mechanically rather than spiritually. Our first impulse is to assume there's something wrong in our techniques. The need is for adjustment, not repentance. There's something wrong in the system that needs doctoring. And he says this, how easy for even energetic evangelicals to look for a new gimmick rather than to cry out for a new heart. And then he says this. He says, in light of the situation of Israel, again, we don't want to just completely destroy the fact that Nahash, king of the Ammonites, was an actual threat. And he says, in light of the situation, it's perfectly rational to ask for a king. It's a far more efficient way to do war. It's perfectly rational to ask for a king. But yet, God viewed it as a rejection of his kingship. So he says this, Davis says, Our proposals and solutions, then, can be completely reasonable, clearly logical, obviously plausible, and yet utterly godless. We want to see the sinfulness of this sin, but notice that in verses 13 and 15, Samuel just, he doesn't, he doesn't seem to camp out there yet. He just jumps immediately into a rather ordinary call for the people and the king to obey God's words. They should fear the Lord and they should listen to him. They should fear him and follow him. He's saying, God's given you this king, and, and yes, it was flowing from sinful motives, but nothing wrong with it in and of itself. So, so start right where you are, Israel. Start right where you are. It's always the right time to repent and follow God's word. And yet, we see that God is true to his word. Samuel doesn't neglect the sin, right? If we look at verses 16 and 18 now, God is true to his word. And there aren't just blessings and good things and guidance in his word, there are also covenantal curses contained in his law, and especially curses against those who have God's law but have rejected it and ignore it. So God displays his power in this passage, right? And again, this would call to mind Samuel saying, isn't it it the wheat harvest today? Well, maybe the Lord will, I will ask the Lord to send thunder and rain. I will ask the Lord to show the power of his judgment against you. And we know this is, this is to call them to repentance. But to show the power of his judgment against you so that you might repent. And it, it works. It does call them to repentance. But also, it reminds them all the more of the insanity of their rebellion in the first place not only has this God shown his faithfulness to them time and time again, his covenantal love, he's the Lord of the weather. He is the creator of all things, the sustainer of all things, the God who by the power of his word puts the clouds and the rain and the thunder right wherever he wants them. Why would they have rejected him in the first place? And the people know this, and they know the fearful consequences of their sin, and they are afraid. They're so afraid, they don't, even, they don't even dare to call him our God. They say, Samuel, pray to the Lord your God that he doesn't kill us, because we have multiplied our sins in this way. So, but look, look at verses 20 and 22. Though Samuel in discussing the exodus and the redemption again and again and again in the time of the judges, has used the past, has used God's past faithfulness as a way to emphasize the insanity and the ugly rebelliousness of their sin. He transitions into reminding them that God does not change like they do. Hear the comfort of these verses. See God's faithfulness. Stand still. Listen to God's faithfulness. And Samuel said to the people, Do not be afraid. You have done all this evil. Yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. And do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. God's pleasure is to make a people for himself. And that has always been his pleasure. The Exodus, the time of the judges, that had always been his pleasure. And God's pleasure then is the driving force behind saying, God is pleased to make you his people. Don't turn from him. Don't turn to empty things. As a result, stay with the Lord and you'll have a guide and an intercessor. Samuel shows us the faithfulness of God and his ability to faithfully bring curses, but this doesn't just convict us of sin. God's faithfulness, seeing God's faithfulness, seeing God's power to be able to bring curses doesn't just convict us of sin and make us fear. It also commissions us for his service, for wholehearted, willing service. Right, but, but we also see verse 25. There is a warning Yet, if you continue to do wickedly, the Lord you will, be, will sweep you away. You will be swept away. And we're just in First Samuel twelve. Right? We're, we're we're in the middle of this long work of First and Second Samuel, in the midst of a long history of Israel. And we we perhaps remember that uh, this this warning is 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 actually a description of what happens to them, right? Maybe that's small, mild sweepings away here and there throughout Saul and David's life and certainly throughout the history of all the kings. They continue to do wickedly and the Lord does sweep them away, faithful to his word to bring judgment upon his people. He sweeps them away. And we know that that's because such pleasure, such faithfulness, The fact that Samuel can utter these words, do not be afraid in light of this holy God that controls the universe, you have done all this evil. The way that those two things can coexist is because of Jesus Christ, is because the whole Old Testament points to the fact that we needed a better king. We needed a better judge. We needed a better priest. We needed a better sacrifice. We needed a better sage. Hallelujah for Jesus Christ. But the intensification of God's faithfulness that we see in Jesus Christ in all the glorious ways that he's provided for us, the intensification of God's faithfulness revealed to us also intensifies Our sense of the heinousness of sin. The intensification of seeing God's faithfulness in Christ intensifies our sense of sin. Consider what the author of the Hebrews says in chapter 10, verses 28 to 31. He says this, anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Oh, the sinfulness of sin, trampling underfoot the, God, the Son of God, profaning the blood of the covenant, outraging the Spirit of grace. How are we not swept away? How do we dare find comfort in life and in death. The closer we get to God, the closer that God gets to us, the more faithful he is to us, the more we can see our sin, the more we can intensely sense how unclean and defiled we are before him. How can we have such comfort in life and in death? Isn't it pretentious? And the answer is no. I didn't read the whole question. The Heidelberg Catechism is much better than I made it out to be. It says, How many things must you know to live and die in the joy of this comfort? Three. First, how great my sin and misery are. Second, how I am delivered from all my sins and misery. We have been delivered from that. Again, listen to the author of Hebrews in the very beginning. He says this in chapter 1, verse 1 to 3, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He this is talking about our deliverer Jesus. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature and he upholds the universe by the power of his by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The glory of Jesus Christ. The glory of the complete finitude, not finitude, finality, important difference, finality of his purification for us. It's wonderful. And yet, brothers and sisters, I often find it unremarkable. I often find myself in my own devotions in the pulpit with unbelief and don't see it as glorious as it is. I become bored. When I'm reading a good Christian book, I skip the block-quoted scripture. Which Praise the Lord for good Christian books. But it's not my king. Praise the Lord for all kinds of things that are good. Right? We become bored. Again, or at least I can become bored. I can hear preachers say this with power and yet find myself unsatisfied. And my mind's looking for something else. My mind wants them to move on. My mind wants them to address some sort of other issue. I can find myself looking to books, to programs, to ministries, to money, to even the great blessing of our pastors here at Westminster. The great blessing of these gifts, these men that are our gifts to us, to shepherd us, but they are not our king. We can look to them rather than God. Right, And again, we can be especially vulnerable to this kind of sinful rebellion, to the neglect in the situation that Israel is in, in this passage. They just won a great battle, and then Samuel preaches this sermon. They won a great battle when Samuel preaches this sermon, and they are sinfully deceived by something that isn't necessarily wicked. This isn't a scandalously obvious sin. It's not externally scandalous. It's internally wicked. It says something awful about their hearts. And why do we think we're different? Let's consider some other people who didn't have externally scandalous sins. Consider the Pharisees and the Jewish leaders who knew the history of God's faithfulness, had so much of it memorized, but when they were faced with Christ, they said this in John 19. They cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. See, the little seed that happens in simple peaceful neglect or rebellion, crying out to man instead of God, doesn't stay small. They say, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? And the chief priests, the chief priests answered, we have no king but Caesar. So he delivered them. Over to be crucified. Rejecting God as the foundation and source of our blessing, rejecting Him as King, is not a small, innocuous sin. Stripped of the external niceties and worldly success, it's rebellion just like any other rebellion in the scriptures. But how do we root it out? How do we root out such unbelief? How can we get the heart surgery that we need? What can dissolve what Sinclair Ferguson calls the superglue of sin? What can dissolve the superglue of sin? The only solvent is the blood of Christ. Look to Christ to fight your dismissal of Christ. And again, look to Christ your king. When we say the blood of Christ, we're talking about real human blood that was warm and smelled. When we look at the cross, we're talking about real agony and pain. Not a theological concept, not a theory of the atonement, but a man was nailed to a cross. And our sin was nailed there to him. How do we apply this in our lives? We've got to go back to verse 20 do not be afraid. You have done all this evil. What a a glorious connection that Samuel and the Holy Spirit has given us in that passage. Where do we see the heinousness of our sin? At the cross. And what has to happen in our hearts as we see the glory of the anger of God revealed at the cross? We need to be humble enough to see that horror and say, thank you. To see a man dying and say, thank you, that's what I need. I need someone to die for me. And this is exactly what our text tells us to do. Look at verse 24. It says, for consider what great things God has done for you. Consider the glory of God's faithfulness in Jesus Christ. And I I need some help here to talk about the glory. And we don't have time to jump into John Owen, so we'll have to settle for Jonathan Edwards. And, and, And Jonathan Edwards says this. He says, Some are struck with the glory and wonderfulness of the dying love of Christ, and some with the sufficiency and preciousness of his blood as offered to make atonement for sin. Others, with the value and glory of his obedience and righteousness. In some, the excellency and loveliness of Christ chiefly engages their thoughts. In some, his divinity, that he is indeed Son of the living God. And in others, the excellency of the way of salvation by Christ and its suitableness to their necessities. We dare not neglect such a great salvation. And we dare not to think that we only need to hear it at the beginning of our life in Christ. As Ralph Davis says, this passage reminds us that we don't only become Christians by grace alone, we remain Christians by grace alone. And in God's mercy, we need not be swept away in wrath, but can be swept off our feet in thankful obedience by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's the third part of the catechism. I must know how great my sin and misery are, how I am delivered from all my sins and misery. Third, how I am to thank God for such deliverance. So how should we thank God for such deliverance? How should we fight to maintain a daily sense of Christ as our King? Two things come to mind prayer and his word. And with prayer, don't get distracted by telling yourself, ah, I know I need to pray more. I don't want to even talk about how much time you spend in prayer. That could be a good thing to talk about. That's not what I want to talk about. I want to talk about what is the scope of things that you pray about, Not how much time you devote, and praise the Lord for those of you who are faithful prayer warriors, but what is the scope of things that you think it's worth praying about? It should be everything. Christ is King of all. We should ask Him for all. Again, and what are we deceived by? Whose favor do we think we need? Whose intercession, whose gifts do we think we need? Look to Christ. What is the scope of of the blessings that we seek from Him. Ask, seek, knock. Our prayer life is one way to daily say, Christ is King of all, Christ is King of all. And, and He delights. He delights to be our intercessor, He delights to be our guide through every good and right way that we might face. So look to Christ. Second, look to the Bible. Be captivated by the Scriptures. Cross reference your entire life with the Scriptures. Be a King. This is what the king was supposed to do. In Deuteronomy 17, it lays out, sorry, I paused because I was considering reading the whole thing. But, he, but, but basically, the king was to do a number of things. He wasn't supposed to have a lot of wives. He wasn't supposed to have a lot of chariots because the Lord is still the king, even if the king is the king. What was he supposed to do? He's supposed to copy out God's word by hand, his own personal copy. That is a king like no other king. But that, that's, the kind of ki- that's the kind of people we want to be. We want to be like the king of Israel was supposed to be. Copy out God's word, all of it. What a joy it is to have God's word. He has not treated us like any other. He's treated us better than any other people. He's given us his word. Let's consider the usefulness of his word. I want to I dive Briefly, so many things that we must look to his word to honor the kingship of our, of our Lord Jesus Christ. Whether it's uh, how we handle race, whether it's how we handle church government, everything. But one thing that we should consider in an election cycle is how we handle our speech. So let's, let's look. I want to read briefly a section from another catechism. Well, sections from a section of another catechism. This is the Westminster Larger Catechism on what the Ninth Commandment forbids, on what the ninth commandment forbids. A variety of things come out. I recommend that you make it your study, especially in an election cycle as our hearts pop into our mouths all too quickly. It forbids things like slandering, like flattering, Like aggravating small thoughts, raising false rumors, receiving and countenancing evil reports. The Word of God would say it rules your ears too. Are you happy when you hear something bad about someone? The Word of God would guide us in this, and it can make us a people that are holy, like our Lord Jesus Christ is holy. And that will be a foundational point to revival spreading through this land. Make our kingship, our allegiance to Christ known by prayer and by diving deeply and broadly in his word, ruling all of life. So I want to close by reading the Heidelberg Catechism question again. And as I read it, consider the multifaceted gem of comfort that we have in Christ And also the simple path of humble faith to receive its joy. What is your only comfort in life and in death? That I am not my own, but belong, body and soul, in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. by His Holy Spirit also assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for Him. Second, how many things must you know to live and die in the joy of this comfort? Three, first, how great my sin and misery are. Second, how I am delivered from all my sins and misery. Third, how I am to thank God for such deliverance. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that this text shows us that it is your pleasure to make a people for yourself and that you will have everything that you want. Lord, we do thank you for such a great deliverance for the blood of Christ that is the solvent to the super glue of sin in our lives. Lord, Lord, would you humble us so we might be thankful and look at the horrors of the cross and say thank you and look at the empty tomb and say hallelujah. Lord, and and would, would the hallelujahs run throughout the rest of our week? Would the things of this first day of the week be first and foremost in our mind throughout the rest of it? Lord, we do ask that as we sang earlier, that since words can never measure, would our lives be full of your praise. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m., to learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.